This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello, and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash Aegist to save 20% on all their products today. Welcome to episode 85 of the SuperAge podcast. It is great to have you with us. This will be dropping on June the 1st, 2022. So I hope everyone had a wonderful Memorial Day holiday. Um, I live in the mountains of Utah, and as it does every Memorial Day since for the last three years that I've been here, it snowed. I, I, I just I don't even have words for that. Um, but it's, I have to say it's super beautiful because the trees have all bloomed. So there's all this green foliage and flowers and everything, and then you know there's like an inch or two of this white snow on top of it. So. Super beautiful, and um, yeah, it's a little weird, Memorial Day snow, but it's gone, and it's going to be 70 today. So probably like a few of you out there, I went to the movies this last weekend, and I saw the new Top Gun, which, it's awesome. I just got to say, it's so much fun. It's really great. It's way better than the first one. I mean, the first one came out in like, when the mid-80s, and in fact, one of the pilots on that film, who did some of the stunts we had we had on this show like a year and a half ago, John Gucci Foley, and he's um he's quite a guy as you would expect. So if you go back through the show archive uh, about a year and a half, you'll see John Foley there and uh, have a listen to him. It's, there's some good stories there. But I just thought it was wonderful to be out in the theaters again. I'm you know myself I I'm not a big TV guy, um, but I love going to the movies. There's something about seeing a um, Cinema, especially cinema, you know, like a Top Gun sort of thing, which you just have to see on a giant screen with a lot of other people. It's just so nice to be doing that again. So, yeah, um, my recommendation is if you haven't seen that film, go see it. It's really fun. One of the things that we initiated here recently is called Hot or Not. And it's sort of a fun sort of game show thing that we do on Instagram every Monday at 415 um, Mountain Time. And uh, those we keep those on the feed so you can read them. And this last week, we had one of the senior nomads on. So we had Debbie on. And Debbie and her husband have been traveling nonstop for the last nine years. Like, they sold their house. They've just lived in, I think she said, like 300 Airbnbs. Um, so, which is definitely not my jam. Um, but uh, it seems to work for them. So... Um, that's on the Instagram feed now. And then this next week on Hot or Not, we're actually going to do it in the morning because we have a guest coming in from the UK, Luis de Oliveira, um, who's the head of De La Espada. And we're going to talk about furniture, interiors. Um, can you have plaid chairs? Is that hot or not? I don't know. We're going to find out from Luis. So that's going to be good fun uh, next week on Hot or Not on Instagram. This week on the Super Aid Show, we've got Dr. Todd Hurst. Todd is a cardiologist of some renown from the Mayo Clinic, and he has a lot of interesting things to talk to us about. Um, statins, good or bad, um, you know, 
this amazing statistic that he gave me earlier, something like over 80% of Americans have at least one symptom of cardiometabolic disease, which I just, this is just a jaw-dropping statistic to me. So we're going to talk about what is cardiometabolic disease and what are the symptoms and you know what can be done to improve that. How can we improve our cardiometabolic health? So we've got Todd coming up in just a second. Looking forward to that. So one of the reasons we're having Todd on the show today is we get calls and emails from all of you. And it seems like a, a real interesting topic for people is, of course, heart health, <laughs> health outcomes, and statins. So thank you so much for you know reaching out to us and letting us know what it is that you would like to know about. Uh, um, if you want to contact me directly, it's david at superage.com. Or thank you so much for all the people who've been calling in. We have a call-in number. It's 801-871-5291. 801-871-5291. It's free. It's just a Google number. Um, so if you have anything you'd like to know about, any questions, any comments you would like us to play in the air, hey, give us a shout. And we'll see if we can uh, address those and Bring other people on like um, Dr. Todd Hurst to answer your questions. Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, which is the dashboard to our inner health. This is really an indispensable part of my health and wellness program. One of the quotes that Dr. Hurst gives here um, in the show that's about to come up is he says that, you know, we're not the best assessors of our own health, that we really need to track, we really need numbers attached to these things. You know, can you really say... Um, I'm feeling good today. Therefore, my LDL is whatever. I know. Maybe you can do that. I can't do that. I, I need actual numbers. I need to see how I'm doing, how I'm tracking. Am I improving? Are the things that I can do? And what are the actionable things that I can do to improve these metrics so I can improve my long-term health and wellness? And this is what I like so much about the Inside Tracker platform. It's not just a number. It's a number with suggestions about how to improve your numbers. And I, I really like that because, you know, as we talk a little bit about in the show here, if I'm given some abstract number about something or other, but without an action plan about what to do about it, how useful is that to me? Not very. So Inside Tracker, huge fan, save 20% on all the products. Go to insidetracker.com slash ages. Hey, Dr. Todd, how are you today? I am fantastic, David. Excited to have a conversation with you. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Um, tell people a little bit about your background. Okay, well, I'm a cardiologist. I, I, um, I for whatever reason, I grew up in a small town in New Mexico that, uh, you know, uneducated family, poor family. But I had this dream that I wanted to be a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, which seemed like completely crazy when you're eight years old and don't even really know any doctors, but. For whatever reason, that was my you know dream as a little boy, and uh, I, I'd say with more uh, luck than guidance or, or, or skill, I ended up uh, achieving that, and, and ultimately uh, became a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. Amazing! And my understanding, and help me out if I'm if if I say anything incorrect, please please just stop me. But my understanding is that. Uh, you know, various cardiovascular issues are what kill more people than anything else. Is that, do I get that right? Absolutely true. Unfortunately, you know, heart disease is still the number one cause of death and disability 
worldwide and it's a, a you know that that's a, a terrible thing in and of itself but when we realize that most of that heart disease is preventable with pretty simple interventions and it makes it even more tragic absolutely so uh, talk to me a little bit about the you know i know i know the american heart association has i think they have like seven factors that they want people to work on to prevent heart disease what did should we go through those? Absolutely. I, I, I love the American Heart Association's Life Simple 7. Frankly, finding this out early in my career was instrumental in defining what I wanted to do as a cardiologist and, and really my purpose, professional purpose in, in life. So uh, American Heart Association came up with Life Simple 7, maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, and it was seven factors that when they looked at populations of people, those people that optimized the most of these seven factors were the ones that had the least amount of heart disease. And in fact, uh, the people that could optimize all seven of those had 80% less heart attacks than those who didn't optimize these seven things. And so a really good place to start, I think, when we're considering, okay, well, how are we going to lower uh, the numbers of people that are being afflicted with heart disease? And those seven things are, you know, as they say, very simple, um, blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar, uh, body weight, uh, not smoking, uh, being physically active and eating a nutritious diet. So those seven factors are the life simple seven and can prevent up to, or the people that optimize those have 80% less heart attacks than those who do not. So let's put some numbers on those. Um, when you're talking blood pressure, what are you, what are you talking? The, the criteria used in these research studies was a blood pressure less than 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury. And what are you looking at in terms of blood sugar? So blood sugar in the studies was a fasting blood sugar of less than 100. Now realize these research studies are done on big populations. They have to use the data that is available. What we know, or what I know as a clinician is that a fasting blood sugar is just a point in time measurement and not always reflective of somebody's ability to handle uh, uh, sugars and, and, and glucose metabolism. And so there are other tests that we can look at that provide more detail, like a hemoglobin A1C or even continuous glucose monitoring. But for these research studies, a fasting blood sugar less than a hundred was the criteria for optimal blood sugar. And those, those sort of longer term measurements, the, um, A1C number, um, what are you, what are you looking at there? Yeah. So the hemoglobin A1C is basically a measure of the average blood sugar over the last several months for that individual. Now, you know, there are other nuances to this where uh, hemoglobin A1C can not be completely reflective of blood sugar, but let's in general, blood sugar uh, averages over the last several months can be best measured by this hemoglobin A1C. So we have uh, measurements. It's a percentage of the blood uh, uh, that has been, um, you know, has this, uh, uh, sugar molecule on it and the criteria, if it's greater than 6.5%, then that would be consistent with somebody that has diabetes. If it's between 5.7 and 6.5%, that's pre-diabetes and then less than 5.6% is in a normal range. 
I'm looking at my readings right now. Mine's 4.9. So I guess I'm okay. Beautiful. That's a wonderful, wonderful blood sugar. Um, and let's go to, let's go to cholesterol. When you're thinking about cholesterol, what are the numbers that you're looking at? Yeah. So in, in the research studies for life, simple seven, it was just a total cholesterol less than 200. Again, not the optimal measure, but what was available for these research studies, but far more impactful from my perspective as a cardiologist is the details behind those numbers. At the first level, we can just do a standard lipid profile or cholesterol profile that provides you with you know, total cholesterol, the triglycerides, the HDL, and the LDL uh, cholesterol levels at a minimum. So all of those have impact in, in our health. LDL is the one that most cardiologists spend the most time focusing on because that's the one that is most strongly correlated with heart disease risk, meaning heart attack risk. Uh, but the other measures, triglycerides and HDL, oftentimes referred to as the good cholesterol, are measures of metabolism or of cardiometabolic disease, which is really an epidemic problem in, uh, in the world these, these days. So those can be important uh, as well. Going to the next level, for some people, even those numbers don't provide enough detail. And so we, we can add additional testing that can provide it, uh, uh, insights into certain situations. For, for example, doing advanced lipid particle analysis, or you know the, you know the, the size and the particle numbers and the ApoB levels, all of those can be used by subspecialists who are looking for those real nuanced aspects to guide patients and what's going to be the optimal treatment for their cholesterol. But in general, we're focusing on LDL triglycerides and HDL numbers in most people in assessing their risk for heart disease. And what's the, you mentioned the LDL is the one that a lot of cardiologists focus on. What, what's the number that you like to see there? Yeah, that's, that's one of the more complex of the factors. And in fact, I, I talk to my patients a lot of times about, you know, what, how are we going to optimize your future heart health? And I tell them that I don't need to know anything about you. When I look at Life Simple 7, I don't need to know anything about you to tell you I, I want your blood pressure to be good. I want your weight to be good. You eat healthy, exercise, all of those factors. But when it comes to the LDL cholesterol, my goal is dependent on your risk. And so I need more details about that person to tell them what that optimal level of LDL cholesterol. So the average LDL cholesterol in the United States is about 130 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, if you have heart disease, meaning you're at the highest risk for future heart, risk, uh, heart disease, we have really good research evidence that we want those numbers or those people that get uh, LDL levels less than 70 do the best. So that's going to be our goal. Um, so it's really dependent on the risk of the patient as to what that LDL goal is. Um, the highest risk uh, numbers, LDL greater than 190, that's generally accepted in cardiology as a very high risk LDL cholesterol level that is going to benefit from medication treatment. And um, I remember I recently had um, something called a CT, a calcium scan of my heart. Yes. Um, yes. And, I, and I was given a score. Yes. Um, which was, I recall the number was two. Um, and um, do you, could tell people, cause I, I, I thought this was like a brilliant test. Um, is this something you have people do and, and maybe tell people what it is? 
Absolutely. I, I think it's a, a really helpful test. So, you know, as I mentioned, our decisions about the treatment for LDL cholesterol are dependent on your risk, but assessing that risk can be a real challenge. Like some people, we already know their risk. They've had a heart attack in the past. We know they're a very high risk for future heart attacks. So they're absolutely high risk. Um, but for in, in, before people have heart attacks, assessing that risk can be a challenge. Our guidelines tell us that we should calculate risk scores. We have this calculator. It's called ASCVD, atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease risk score. And it's really good at identifying risk in populations of people. Uh, it takes into account age and gender and blood pressure and cholesterol numbers and, and uh, diabetes. But the challenge is it doesn't tell us that individual's risk. It doesn't tell us you know, their genetic milieu and their environmental exposures and their lifestyle choices that they've made over time. How do all of those things come together to identify their individual risk? When we can use imaging tools, like either a CT calcium score or some places use a carotid ultrasound, that's a ultrasound of the neck arteries or even the femoral arteries, the arteries in the legs, we can identify how all of those things came together to give that individual their burden of disease, meaning that we can see how much artery disease do they have right now. In regards to the calcium score, we're not really looking at plaque or, or buildup of artery disease. We're looking at a, a, a surrogate of that, which is the calcification. But we know from big studies that when we know how much calcification somebody has in their heart arteries or how much uh, artery disease they have in their neck arteries, or their femoral arteries, that's a very strong predictor of their future risk of having heart attacks, strokes, and, and even death. So in, in situations where there's uncertainty about the risk of that person, so doctor sits down with the patient and either the doctor's not sure what their risk is or the patient's not sure where their risk is, imaging studies like a CT calcium score can be really helpful in, in guiding us. And I, I think in, in situations where it can be uh, best used are in people that have a family history of heart disease. You know, they don't know if they got the bad genes or not uh, in regards, because they didn't maybe make the same lifestyle choices as their afflicted uh, family member. Uh, but we still know that they could be genetically predisposed to this. A calcium score test can be helpful in giving guidance to the doctor and patient on the best way to optimize their future heart health. Um, I, I sort of, I'm one of these people that track and test everything. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as I, I was, uh, went in for my physical and my doc was like, well, maybe you want this, maybe you don't. And I, I said, well, what is this? How does this work? And once he explained to me, I was like, yes, immediately. <laughs> I want to know what that is um, to see what we have to do about it. Um, and um, oh, that's can, just how I am. Yeah, they can be incredibly valuable tools. I also say, I will point out though, that I, there are, are risks to that study as well. Uh, you know, radiation exposure is really minimal. So I think that that is probably not a significant concern, but I certainly wouldn't want anybody to expose to radiation that doesn't, there's not some benefit to that. 
Um, so, you know, if somebody's already identified at high risk, meaning they've had a heart attack or they've had a stent or, uh, other, they have diabetes, for example, I don't think a calcium score really helps you any because you already know that that individual's at high risk. Mm. Um, another thing though, that I, I I'm concerned about these being used more widely is that we know a calcium score can lead to more testing in the future. And some of that testing is invasive and has even more significant risks to it. So I think it, it's it's important to use the test in people where we're really clear on what we're looking for and then what we're going to do with that information and not as a gateway into more procedures, more invasive mm. testing that may be bringing on bad outcomes that we would have avoided by not doing it in the first place. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I guess I hadn't, I don't see that far as far down the road as you do. I just wanted to know <laughs> where, is there something here that I should be really alert to that, um, that I don't know about? Um, yes. And, and this is where it's the, that important conversation between the doctor and the patient. What are your goals? What are the opportunities? Does this make sense to make those decisions? Yeah, I see that big, um, you know, mortality issue with uh, anything to do with heart attack, stroke. And I'm thinking, um, let's avoid that. Yes. <laughs> um, so um, excellent. And, you know, I guess on this topic, as far as um, lowering cholesterol, um, before we got on the call, we had a little discussion about statins. And yes. um, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but from what I've read, um, I'm very pro statin. Seems like an awesome thing. Um, the, the newer ones, um, resuvastatin is the one that I know about. What are your, your cardiologists, what, what's your feeling on statins? Yeah. Stat, statins is one of the most interesting topics to discuss. Uh, and, and so statins have been around since, uh, the mid eighties. Uh, so we've had a long time with them. They are, as, as far as I know, the best studied medicines in the history of medicine, like I can't think of anything else where we have so many well done uh, studies, you know, placebo controlled, randomized, large populations. And in, in every study, with a, a couple of exceptions, when we take a high risk population and we randomize them to a statin medication or a placebo and we follow them over time, the group that takes statins has a lower rate of heart attacks, strokes, and death. So, it, you know, the, the statins work, statins lower the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and death in a high-risk population. The controversy is how do we define that high-risk population? So I think it's it's generally, you know, well-accepted and, and, and in my mind, unequivocal that if you have established heart disease, you've had a heart attack, you've had a stroke, you've had a stent or a bypass surgery, statin medications are likely going to be more beneficial than risky in that. The, the real challenges are in people who have not had that heart attack yet. What's going to be that, you know, is a statin medication, are they high risk enough for the statin medication to be a benefit for them? Um, for, for whatever reason, and I don't know that I understand this, there's a large contrarianism around statin medications. And I, you know, I think a little cynicism about medical therapies is probably a healthy thing in general, but I think that controversy around statins, there's a lot of misinformation out there and that has led people 
to foregoing a really, you know, a, a really beneficial uh, therapy with a very low risk to it at their de- detriment. So I, I think that that's a, a, a great tool in the toolbox, but it's, um, I, I, I'll, I'll just illustrate this. There's a study that was published within the last month that I was looking at, um, looked at a big population in the United States, people with a clear indication for statin, meaning that they would lower the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and death if they were taking a statin medication. And in this study, only 50% of the people that would benefit from a statin was actually taking one. Uh, behavioral change. We're going to get, that's the big one. And we're going to get that in a second, but I, I, w- I want to stay on this statin idea. Um, tell me, you know, in the research that's out there, what are the, I I've heard about possible muscle cramping from statins, but are you hearing anything else that, that are, you know, other things that could happen from taking statins that may be a downside that we should know about? Yeah. So, so great question. And we do know a lot about this. So, so far and away, the most common adverse effects of a statin medication is muscle aching. And about 90% of people do not have any muscle aching on a statin, but about 10% of people do. Uh, Interestingly, I'm one of them. I've tried seven different statins and I have muscle aching on all of them. Wait, I want to stop. I want to stop you right there. Why are you taking statins? Uh, so I, um, I have a family history of heart disease. My grandfather had a heart attack at age 61. My cholesterol numbers aren't great. They're average. And I believe in the data around statins. Let me, if I can take a step back from the, the muscle aches, uh, study, I, I I think this is an important point that I, 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 it, it convinced me to take a statin, uh, or try to take a statin, uh, 10 years ago. So, you know, all of the statin trials that I've been talking about, uh, research studies, these last about five years. Uh, so we know in a high-risk population, statin or no statin uh, improves heart attack, strokes, and death over five years. But of course, when we're in our 40s and 50s and 60s, we'd like to know more about, okay, well, what are the benefits over a lifetime? You know, what about mm-hmm. 20 years, 30 years? And we don't have research studies that go that long. They're too expensive and we'll never have them. But one study that was done early on in the statin literature, it was published in the 90s, it was called West of Scotland trial. And they took all men, uh, very high cholesterol, but didn't have a heart attack and they put them on statin or not. And they found at the end of the study that those people that took the statin had lower risk of heart attacks and strokes and death. But here's what's fascinating. They kept following these people after the five years. Uh, they they, they uh, went out about 20 years later um, you know, at the end of the trial, everybody's out of the trial, but uh, each group now is just equally likely to be put on a statin after that. And it actually ended up being the same between the two groups. And, and it was quite low, as a matter of fact. But here's what they found 20 years later in these two groups, realizing that the two, two, difference between the two groups is one took a statin for five years, 20 years ago. One took a placebo for five years, 20 years ago. And the group that took the statin had 27% less heart attacks and a 9% decrease in death rates uh, from from presumably from taking that statin. And so there seems to be that legacy effect of statins that'll last even after stopping them. 
based on that, I thought that it made sense for me to take a stat, not for my near-term risk, but for my lifetime risk of, of heart disease and stroke. And, and I also read about um, there's certain anti-inflammatory effects from statins, which yeah. may actually be, um, you know, anti-carcinogenic. Yes, there, there is observational information about statins in a lower risk for cancer. Interestingly, uh, uh, statin, you know, one of the concerns that people have around statins is that it can affect cognitive abilities. And this has been looked at in really great detail. Hmm. Uh, and, and in fact, statins lower the risk of dementia, at least in observational studies. So when we just mm -hmm. look at people, we're not evaluating uh, dementia risk as its primary outcome. We're just looking at it uh, you know, as one of the the, the things that it, that can occur, um, people that take statins have a lower risk of dementia. Uh, uh, that that take a statin, they have a lower risk of cancer as well. The real mechanism behind statins is is often discussed and and debated. Uh, what I tell people is that while we call them cholesterol medications uh, because they do lower cholesterol. There's more to it than that. And what I think they're best referred to as risk medications. They lower the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and death. That's why people should take statin is that they're a high risk for those outcomes. Um, not to go too far down the statin rabbit hole here, but uh, my understanding is that there were I, there are two classes of statins. There are um, ones that are lipid-based and ones that are water-based. I may have gotten that correct. And the lipid-based yep. ones cross the brain blood brain barrier and that sounds like that could be a problem but the the newer ones like resuvastatin um is water-based and it won't yeah so uh, you know the, the the that's true there is a different classifications in in statin medications and it goes beyond just lipid or water uh you know soluble the 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 difference between dementia though between those two groups we, we haven't been able to identify that there's one mm. group that's benefits better than the other one i tend to use resuvastatin more often in my patients like that's my kind of go-to uh statin medication in general but it, it's less about uh whether it's uh lipid uh you know phobic or hydrophobic it's more about there just seems to be a lower risk of, of the muscle aching with these medications. Mm. They're incredibly effective at lowering cholesterol at, at low dosages. And uh, the outcome data that we have for resuvastatin is really impressive, even though it's a, one of the more newer, although still generic now, uh, statins, it, it, it seems to uh, be the outcome just seems to be uh, a, a bit more impressive. And so I tend to use resuvastatin more frequently. Anything that says reduces all-cause mortality, I think just sounds like a really good thing to me. Isn't that true? Like I, I, I say that to <laughs> yeah. my patients all the time. I'm like, we don't have a lot of things that lower mortality. It seems like we should and we, and we should, but there's just not a lot of things that I can give you and say, I know this has been proven to lower the risk of death. You know, like that's, yeah. that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. Absolutely. So let's talk. Um, so there were these seven factors that we went through and then, you know, there might be a few others. I think that we spoke earlier about, you know, um, sleep clearly you're not sleeping. You're, <laughs> that's not a good thing. Um, uh, 
stress and connection to others. Um, how do these factor into that, that big disease category you mentioned earlier, cardiometabolic disease? Yeah. So um, the, the biggest problem in healthcare is that about 60% of us have diseases that are preventable and oftentimes curable. We're just not doing that. And, and the, the, most of those people with the 60, the 60 percent of people uh, have what doctors call cardiometabolic disease. So uh, a, a term that nobody knows about or nobody has heard about that's not uh, in medicine likely. But how do you know if you have cardiometabolic disease? Well, there are four conditions that often go together, but if you have one of these, then you have a sign of cardiometabolic disease. And those are high blood pressure, high blood sugar levels, unhealthy cholesterol levels, or uh, unhealthy weight. And one of the more recent studies looked at a big population here in the United States, and it found that 87.8% of adults in the United States have at least one sign of cardiometabolic disease. And maybe even more shocking, they looked at a group of adolescents and 78% of teenagers had at least one sign of cardiometabolic disease. Now, here's why this is so important. Not only is cardiometabolic disease making us sick, we have all these chronic diseases, but it's also the primary driver for heart disease, for cancer, for stroke, for dementia, the, the, the most common causes of death and the things that are shortening our lifespan. So cardiometabolic disease, we have an epidemic of cardiometabolic disease. Uh, and and uh, this is driving the poor health that, that we're, we're witnessing among our, ourselves and, and others around us. Well, let's talk about how that intersects with, you know, what are known as the, the hallmarks of aging, you know, um, and I think there are eight or nine of them, um, uh, you know, dysregulated nutrients, um, epigenetic alterations, stem cell exhaustion, all that sort of stuff. These would seem to be accelerated by what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and that's generally what is found, you know, the, one of the things we've been interested in for a long time is how do we assess biologic age? You know, how do mm. we determine where you are right now compared to your chronologic age? And we have lots of tools to do that. But, uh, you know, all of these tools are looking at a, a certain aspect. But I think that rather than saying, OK, well, which one's the best one? Which one's the most accurate one? Maybe the best you know, uh, approach is to take the information as an aggregate, like how can we, you know, when we look at uh, ASCBD risk score and we look at a measure of metabolic health and we look at DNA methylation and telomere length and, uh, you know, these other risk calculators, how can we use that to formulate a plan for somebody that can help guide them on making choices that are more consistent with their health and longevity goals? You know, so I, I guess I, I see this as, you know, one of the things I want to do is identify actionable information. You know, me telling you that you have something that is, you know, worrisome, but you can't change that. I, I don't see that that's going to bring a lot of value. But if I can identify those factors and put it in a context where you can understand, okay, here's where I'm at. 
I think that's the first step in identifying, okay, well, what do I need to do to, to change that? So those are the markers that I'm, I'm most interested in. I, I think that's really interesting that um, at, at the end of the day, I don't really care how long my telomeres are. Like, <laughs> what's the functional result of that, right? Like, right. am I, how is that going to impact the rest of my health, um, you, you know, my strength, my ability to function as a human? That's what I want to know. Absolutely. And that, and that's my goal as well. You know, I, um, I've over time, I, I, you know, with my goal of how do I help people achieve their health and longevity goals? I recognize that I needed to start with this basis of life simple seven, because we just have such a remarkable, uh, data around how optimizing those can improve health, not just prevent heart disease, but as we talked about cancer and dementia, stroke. I mean, these things that shorten our lives, but then, you know, I, how do, what other factors are there important in this? And, and the structure I came up with is this, you know, 10, I call it a health span 10, but it's the four factors around cardiometabolic health. Those are our direction. Those are the things we want to get right. That's our measure of success, blood pressure, cholesterol, body weight, blood sugar. And then what are the six tools that we can use to affect those four things, uh, the, the, the dials, the levers that we can use, and that's nutrition, physical activity, sleep, stress, avoiding toxins, and then connection, social connection, but also connection to purpose, connection to contribution. Those are the factors that we have control over that we have very good science-based. Uh, when we optimize those people, those are the people that are going to live their longest and be the healthiest. Well, I love how you've broken that down. Um, so, but now we come to the real crux of the problem. <laughs> we know there are these six levers and they affect these, they affect these four factors. Um, awesome. It's all about behavior, right? So now you, you, I think that you mentioned 60% of the population out there is um, not doing so well in terms of cardiometabolic health and disease. And I think, what did you say? Half of the people who should be on statins aren't. Right. Um, so these are behavioral problems or people, people are making, they're making choices. How do you, as a cardiologist, how do you, as a physician, how do you impact that? How do you change that behavior so that people get a better outcome? Yeah. What, one of the more challenging, you know, topics and, uh, uh, factors in my develop. I, I, I changed my mind around this, uh, several years ago. So, you know, I, I became interested in preventing heart disease and that became my passion while I was at Mayo clinic. I started the prevention program there, which is called the heart health and performance program. And I was excited about the opportunities to identify people that were at risk. We, the program included, you know, seeing a dietitian, an exercise physiologist, I was seeing people and prescribing the right medications uh, for them. And yet I was still recognizing that some people just weren't getting healthier. And it culminated with this one patient that, that I, I, you know, look back and realize how impactful this was. Uh, this gentleman was a, a high performing individual. He was a CEO of an international company, like successful in everything in his life except for his health. His health was a mess. You know, he was 
early 50s and he was overweight and blood sugar and cholesterol and all these things that were a problem. And the driver of that was the choices that he was making. So we would meet each other, you know, every three months or so. And I would say it was, it was like a groundhog day. Like we'd go through the same thing over and over. I'd be like, okay, blood pressure is not very good. Your cholesterol is not very good. We're going to adjust these medications. But if you would, you know, if you could eat better, lose some weight, start exercising, you know, drink less alcohol, then, then, then this would make this so much easier. And we got to the point where I liked him a lot personally and individually, but I kind of dreaded our visits because I felt like we weren't doing anything. Like we were wasting our time. And at one of those visits, he said something to me that completely changed my perspective. And he said, I wish I could see you every two weeks. And here I was thinking that we had been wasting our time together because we weren't making any progress. And so I'm like, well, why would you want to see me every two weeks? And he says, you know, when I see you, you, I I understand what I need to do. Um, And I do it for a little while, but then life gets busy. I get distracted. It gets hard. I find, you know, come up against these, these obstacles and I fall off track. And then I'm back to you three months later, feeling guilty about not being able to accomplish the things that I know I need to do for my health. And he says, you, you got to have a program that can help me. You got to like, this is the Mayo Clinic for goodness sake. Like, why don't, isn't there a program that can help me do this? And my first reaction was, you know, that's not my job. I'm a cardiologist. Like I know how to, you know, take care of sick people and pull people back from the brink of death. Like, go talk to somebody else about that. But I remember distinctly, I was driving home that night and I realized that I just had this epiphany, like, you know what? That is my responsibility. Like if my goal is to help my patients live longer, be healthier, I need to be a part of that solution. I need to be involved in that. And I that, was, that really started my journey because I got to tell you at that time I had been you know, four years of medical school, three years of residency, four years of fellowship as a cardiologist. And I knew nothing about behavior change. I knew nothing really about nutrition, physical activity, sleep, stress, and the impact those can have on health. So I look back on that moment as my realization is that if we're going to best serve our patients, we have to address those factors. Exactly. And I'm, um, you know, my, (laughs) I'm, uh, you're a very rare, um, medical professional in that, um, I, you know, medical professionals have saved my life (laughs) a few times over and they tend to be very, very good at this one sort of thing that they do. But like, if you ask somebody, you know, if you, I'm, I'm, go to see my GP. I'm not going to ask my GP about exercise. He's, he's not going to know. Um, he's just going to say like, well, activity is good. Um, you know, try and eat, <laughs> try and eat sensibly. Like it's just not his thing, right? He's got like other things that he, he thinks about, but I think, I think that, you know, what you're talking about here is the, um, you know, what, what is the essential role of the physician and what are the, what are the limitations of traditional, disease-focused intervention medicine, which is super essential. Like I said, I'd be dead now without that. Um, But how do we expand that role? And is that even possible for someone like yourself, like a, you know, a highly specialized cardiologist? 
Yeah, that that's really what I've taken on as my, you know, my purpose, my, you know, the role I want to play in in this professional world. And and you're exactly right. Like expert medical care, I don't want to take away from that. Like how valuable. I mean, thank goodness we have these amazing hospitals and doctors if we are acutely sick. If we have a heart attack or stroke or acute leukemia or critically ill from COVID, like those are life-saving interventions. But if our goal is to stay well, to get well, we, we've just talked about what is important in there. Nutrition, physical activity, sleep, stress, avoiding toxins, social connection. When's the last time that your doctor really talked to you about that in a way that was effective, that put people in a position to have success? And you know, I, I went through this myself. Like, you know, first I was, well, this isn't my responsibility. I'm a cardiologist for goodness sake. Like, you know, talk to me about important things uh, to realizing, wait, this is really important, but how do I help people? Because the usual doctor way, we were educators, right? I mean, it's called doctor's orders for goodness sake. You, you tell people what to do. And then of course they don't do it. And uh, you know, you ask a doctor, all right, well, why don't you talk about lifestyle change? You, and they'll say, oh no, I know it's really important, but nobody will do it. But it's that we're using the wrong tools is what I've discovered over time is that, you know, people don't, there's a saying that people don't resist change. They resist being changed. And so if your strategy is the doctor, as the doctor is, hey, you need to exercise, uh, lose weight, uh, eat better, and quit smoking, and I'll see you in three months, we can't be surprised that in three months they haven't changed in, in, in their approach. But what I've learned and discovered over time is that if we can within our power of a physician, because the physician does have a critical role, like the physician is a credible uh, source of information for many patients. They they have knowledge. They they are catching people at a time when they're really amenable to making changes in their lives. What they need though is to to work in a team based approach, in a system that guides people on how to change their behavior, and that's not by telling them what to do. That's exactly right. I. Uh... You know, I call it the refrigerator magnet strategy. <laughs> yeah. How well does that work? <laughs> Not so well. Um, so how, you know, how would you envision this? I, I love this idea, the team-based approach, the physician being part of the team. And I would say the patient is part of the team also. Um, you know, what, what would that look like? Yeah. So so that's what, what really my professional interest has been is how can I, as a cardiologist, uh, you know, create tools and that teamwork approach that can help people achieve their, their, their long-term goals. And I've realized that there's really three opportunities uh, or three aspects to this. So first is uh, helping people understand where they are right now. Like there's there, there's just a, a natural tendency for us to not have a clear idea of where our health is right now. We, we rationalize, we, you know, uh, we, we don't have all the information. We're not the best assessors of our own, you know, situation and our own health. So if I can help them get clear on where they are right now, and then what do they need to do? That's where the health span 10 comes in. Like I just focus on those 10 factors you know, here's your best opportunities to achieve your health and longevity goals. And then the last part of that is how do you do it? Because 
knowing what to do, as you just described, that's not what the solution is. And what works in that how to do it is what I call creating a personalized habit building system. So systems are how we accomplish any complex goal. Yes, you know, Google or, um, you know, Microsoft or any of the big companies, like they all use systems to deliver the amazing results that they have. And those systems are, uh, or that, that habit building system is one, give people a clear direction. Like where do they want to go? And then what are the exact daily steps to get there? And then they have to track that progress. Like they, it, you know, that tracking is really essential to uh, to 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 getting the, that success. Then part two of that is shaping their unique path when they're getting the support, the feedback, the accountability, oftentimes from somebody uh, outside of them to help them over the overcome those obstacles, build on the wins, learn from the setbacks, and then adjust to that plan accordingly. And then the last part, the third part is staying emotionally engaged. And, you know, one aspect of that is seeing your progress, like seeing it, that you're making uh, steps towards those goals, but also a regular reminding yourself of your why, like, why is this so important? Why am I focused on my health uh, at this time? Why is longevity important to me? And that's usually around the people that we love, uh, the, the, the purposes that we believe in, the contribution that we uh, that we want that we want to make to the world. What I've discovered is that when we can put people in that system that have that clear direction, the support, the accountability, uh, they're they're using setbacks not as a this is going to take me off track, but really as fuel to say, okay, well that direction wasn't right for me. Here's then let's try this one. They they can't fail. Like they, they, the only way they fail is if they quit, and and it, it really does work like magic. Yeah. Um, I, you've sold me hundred <laughs> percent. I'm, I'm, I'm pre-sold. Uh, you know, I think this idea of tracking is so essential. Um, it, you know, I, this, this podcast is actually sponsored by inside tracker and I, I run my blood work four times a year, um, so that I can track what's going on. And I, I tell people like, you, you just need, there's people, they, they know like how much money's in their bank account. They know how fast their car goes. They know all this other stuff that's ancillary. But like, what you really want to know is, you know, um, what's your LDL level? Yeah. <laughs> like, what's the what's the life ending stuff? You know, you want to know about that. And then this this idea of finding the unique path. And I think that um, we talk a lot on this podcast about everybody's an N of one, and there are huge population studies and you know people can say like oh well in general these things happen but to understand um how statistical distribution works and that you know it's a curve and chances are um all of us are on the tails of one of those curves in one way or another and things have to be looked at individually um based on all this stuff and then you know i love what you were talking about the having the support around to, to see like, okay, this, if, if this isn't working, that's not a bad thing. That's just more data that says that let's try this other thing. Maybe it'll work. Um, and I, and I love the, this idea of purpose, like what is your why? Like, why do you want to live longer? Is it just like, it's, it's point it's, you know, you need, you need to know why you're doing what you're doing. What's your, what's your view? 
what's the vision you have for yourself in the future? And I think that, that, that this, Todd, is like the crux of what all of the research that we've done here is that people's behavior depends on what their vision of themselves is in the future. And a positive vision, something aspirational, inspirational, something they, they feel they can attain, very different behavior outcome than someone who doesn't have that. Oh, I, I love that you have had that insight because that was something that I came to last. Like actually the connection part was uh, number 10. Like I had nine, I was kind of like, oh, it'd be cool if we could get to 10. I just don't know what else I'm going to put into this. And I, over time, I, and what triggered it was I read the research on social connection and you know, it turns out social connection, one, it, we're like have an epidemic of loneliness in yeah. uh, the world these days. Like we're more and more connected uh, technologically, but we're less connected from a human level. And that's not just older people, but young people uh, as well. And how impactful that is on health outcomes. I mean, it's as important as obesity and smoking in, in some studies. So that yeah. started me on, okay, the social connection part, that could be number 10. But then I realized connection is so much more than just social connection, although that's critically important. It's also connection to that purpose, that 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 contribution, that that, you know, how many people do we know that have worked so hard to achieve the goal of retirement? They've they've saved money, they've you know, taking care of their family. They've, you know, created these amazing careers, looking forward to that retirement time. And then they retire and they don't have that purpose going forward. And I don't, I don't know that this is true, but I've read this, that, you know, the, the year of life that has the highest mortality is a year mm -hmm. after you retire. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if it's true, that makes yeah. perfect sense to me. And how do we mitigate that? How do we avoid that? We, we make sure, you know, we identify that purpose, that contribution that we're going to continue to make to the world. And I, and I think that that goes both ways. It's, it's, it is true that um, the, one of the greatest, uh, the fastest ways to die is to retire and have no plan um, because we become, as humans, we become completely untethered. Like we, we really need these sort of central organizing principles in our lives um, and work being a, a big one in the community around work and the, the, the self-worth around that, um, if that's suddenly just abruptly removed, um, that sometimes doesn't go so well. But on the other side of that, one can have, and I'm, um, I'm friends with uh, Dr. Rudy Tanzi, who's head of neurology at Mass General, and he's an expert on Alzheimer's and dementia, and talking about how the, um, if you have the contrary to that. You have a very um, high sense of purpose and need and contribution to those around you. He was telling me you can have, um, you know, a severe case of plaques and tangles in your brain, which should indicate a, a lot of problems in your life. And they don't manifest because you, as humans, we can sign of overcome a lot of these health things, um, at, at least in, in his view, neuro neurologically, if we have that driving purpose. Amen. You know, I, I see this really as foundational now, you know, before 
somebody might've asked me, well, what's the most important thing in good health? And I'm, I might've, you know, said, well, nutrition or physical activity, and, and those could be it. It's, it's different for uh, different individuals. Uh, over time, I've realized that more uh, often than nutrition and physical activity, the foundational issue was sleep and stress, uh, that those needed to be addressed before we could get to the nutrition and physical activity aspects. But I, it, as, again, as I, as I gain experience through this, I'm recognizing that if you have that purpose, if you have that connection as a baseline, you don't need to, to, to generate motivation. You don't need to generate right. willpower to make these decisions that are so important for your health because you're going to do them, you know, right out of the box. Like you're, you're because you're already driven, you're elephant, you know, the, uh, have you ever read that, you know, um, analogy around behavior change and the challenges, the writer and the elephant, right? The writer is logical and, you know, knows the path that they want to take, but the elephant is the emotional. <laughs> and if the elephant's not on board, you're not going where the writer says, I think that's the building that elephant, right? Is that, that yeah. having that purpose that, that, that motivates, that drives your elephant towards where your writer wants them to go. A hundred percent. It's, it's, um, that's right. And I, I, I mean, I see these things, the, the sleep, the stress, the exercise and the, the food, we, um, we have a program called super agent. We see these as sort of an interlocking Venn diagram that if, if any one of them isn't working, um, the other ones don't work. You, you sort of need to optimize all those. And, but that, they're that's yeah, fundamental yeah, but, to what I've realized is that that, and that's why I've created this around the 10 uh, things is because I've re I realized along the time, I can't just address one of those. And I think that's right. why a lot of people have not been able to achieve their health goals or weight goals uh, is because they're trying to do this piecemeal, right? They're, yep. they're, they're doing the calorie restrictive diet that, you know, worked amazingly for whatever celebrity that they read about, but uh, one, it probably wasn't the right fit for them. So going back to the uniqueness of our, you know, each of our unique path, but they, they, they weren't able to see that it was actually their sleep that was the problem. Or right. yeah, I, I guess I'll just say this, there, there's three things. I'll, I'll just share this pearl with you that I've learned over time is that if somebody is not losing the weight that they want to lose, like their, their, their weight's affecting their health, they're eating well, they're, they're, they're being active and they're still not losing that weight. I, I almost universally will say it's one of three things. One, uh, they're not sleeping well, uh, mm -hmm. two, they're not, they're, their stress levels are through the roof and they're not mm -hmm. managing that well. And number three is insulin resistance. Like they're not handling glucose well they're they're insulin resistant and their insulin levels are high and it's just driving energy into their fat cells and not allowing it to get out and so uh it's 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 exciting for me to identify those issues because once people figure that out like how those all those things work together and how one benefit leads to another benefit like you you start exercising so then you sleep better which makes right. your stress better how that all starts working synergistically for you rather than against you. Mm -hmm. How often it is I'll see somebody who's really changed their life. They, they've lost the 20 pounds. They've lowered their blood pressure. They've, you know, achieved that those goals, whatever they were. And they'll say, wow, it was easy. I, I can't believe how easy it was. And it's because they weren't fighting that willpower dogma that you just have to iron willpower your way through this, which never works in the end. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, we see, uh, um, you, you know, you're, you as a physician see this in a different way than we do, but we, we see exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is wonderful. Um, Todd, is there anything you want to leave people with? If they want to connect with you in some way, um, what, what would they do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am in the process of building my practice around helping people identify these 10 factors and how they can optimize those for their future health. Uh, we're, we're not ready to launch that yet. We're going to be uh, launching a practice here in Arizona in the next couple of months that will be covered by insurance. So I'm excited about that. You know, before the opportunities to help people ended up circling around self-pay models, which uh, is just limited, you know, to, to certain segments of the population. Uh, my new practice, I, I've, I've identified methods that we can use insurance to help people achieve those things. Uh, our website is being developed, but it's healthspanmd.com. Uh, Just, uh, you know, come by, sign up for, uh, you know, our email list or whatever. We'll, we'll keep you updated as to when we're ready to launch that practice. And as I said, I'm, I'm looking at within two to three months, being able to see people have those services covered by insurance. I just want to say how insane it is that insurance would not want to cover something that keeps people out of the hospital, out of chronic, out of a chronic disease state. You would think that would be in their best interest. Yeah, I I learned long ago. I you know my very naiveness when I first got interested in this. I was uh, you know I'd be so excited and I'd meet with insurance executives or healthcare organization executives and I would say and we could lower heart disease and bypass surgery and strokes and cancer and all these things and uh, one of them one time I finished I have this enthusiasm and this healthcare executive looked at me and said. Um, isn't that how we make money? And so I realized then, okay. Oh boy. I, uh, incentives are not well aligned here. I, there is, I mean, you know, healthcare is a, a 20% of our economy, right? Like how many, that's a $4 trillion economic engine that is driven by people being sick. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's evilness afoot and that we're trying to, you know, people are trying to keep us down or, or make us sick. That's not true at all. But I, I think what I would emphasize to people is that, it, you know, you have the power to change that, 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 you know, that almost expected that we're going to be sick. Uh, but you, you can't rely on, you know, the, the healthcare industry to solve that problem for you or the insurance company to sell, sell, solve that problem for you. They have their agenda. Uh, and if you're not going to make this decision, uh, they'll be happy to make it for you, but I, you're, you're, you're going to benefit more when you're making that decision. Yeah. Um, I, th I think that, you know, that financial dynamic that you outlined there, um, causes people to be suspicious of things like statins and things that do really work because they see them as, um, you know, something to, I don't know, part of some like evil pharma medical conspiracy. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, I don't know, the, the whole thing is a little messed up. And I, I, 
my, my feeling is that probably 95% of health co- outcomes are within our own control. And it's really simple, low cost, zero cost stuff, you know, like lowering your stress, sleep, eating well, doesn't cost a lot of money to exercise. Um, it, you know, people say they don't have the time, but, um, you know, I spent my 49th year in a hospital, um, and that was a lot of time. And, um, you, you know, you sort of you, like, what's the, what is it really worth to you? You know, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you mean you really don't have the time to exercise? Like, let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think that's a, a you know, a, an opportunity is to make it more clear to people what the, what the, what the true costs are. And, 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 but I will say also that uh, one thing that, that I've learned over time is what, when I was, uh, you know, early in this and I was telling people what to do and they weren't doing it and I would blame the, the patient, right? Like, well, I told them that they need to lose weight and exercise mm-hmm. and they didn't do it. And what I realized over time was that it, what I was interpreting as resistance was really just lack of clarity. I wasn't giving yeah. them a plan that they could follow. And so when I started providing that clarity, all of a sudden that resistance broke down. So, um, and you know, going back to your pharma comment, I, I just want to add, I think that that goes both ways. Like um, there's a lot of people on a lot of medication that is not only not helping them, it's, it's actually harming them. But then again, there's a lot of people not on medications that have the mortality benefits that that they would you know that they should be on, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think some cynicism around medicine. I want anybody to only be on medications that they absolutely need and will benefit them, uh, but don't give those up. It's not an all or nothing thing. It's uh, you right. know, some medications in the right situation are really instrumental in helping people achieve their health and longevity goals. That's right. Partner with your doctor. There you go. <laughs> Todd, it's been really just, it's been wonderful having you on. Um, and I, I appreciate your knowledge and your expertise on this. Um, uh, and- a real pleasure for me. I love, as you can tell, talking about this and uh, happy to, to talk with you anytime. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye now. Thanks everyone for joining us on the show today. It's great to have you with us. And hey, did anybody check out Leap Chats? Um, has anybody downloaded that? I've been I've been going. I think it's great. We had their founder on last week, and I mean, just wonderful. It's nice to have like good, positive social media. Wonderful. Um, and you know, as Todd was talking about this idea of connection and purpose, so important. Can and actually probably more powerful even than you know the other things we talk about: the sleep, nutrition, the movement, and the distressing. Um, but it all de-stressing, not distressing. <laughs> um, but it all goes together. It's one giant Venn diagram to help us live healthier and longer and be able to do the things that we really want to do. Um, thank you again, everyone, for joining us on the show. Hey, if you want to leave us a message, 801-871-5291 is our Google number. Hit me up, david at superage.com. Love to hear from you. And please, if you can, share this podcast with your friends. Because they need to know about all the stuff that you're learning on here. Don't you think? And if you do like the show, please leave us a rating. Leave us a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. We also really love that. Till next week, everyone, have a wonderful week. See you then. Bye now. Bye.